0: Today's reading is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 39. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, gracious Father, we thank you this morning for your word, as we've just heard it read to us. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the good shepherd, that you know your sheep, your sheep know your voice, and that you will never lose any of your sheep. And uh, We thank you for your great grace and your mercy. We thank you for your power. And we pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would take this word that you have inspired and you would apply it to our hearts and our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, friends, let me encourage you to uh, keep your bulletins or uh, your Bibles, better yet, open there to that reading from Hebrews uh, chapter 10. That is where we are this morning in our study. Did you know that uh, people who go to church are happier and healthier than those who don't? It's true. Uh, people who go to church are generally speaking happier and healthier than those who don't. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, who's written a couple of uh, apologetics type books, has wonderfully made this point citing uh, various studies that have been conducted on this very subject. Uh, in particular, she cites Harvard professor Tyler Vanderweel, who in his studies in this area has actually noted the very real positive physical impact that being a consistent member of a church can have upon a person, and that in general, children who are raised in the church are happier and healthier children. Now, that, of course, doesn't mean that uh, that's always the case. Uh, Certainly doesn't mean that church people never struggle with things like depression. They do. It just means that generally speaking, being an active Christian, regularly gathering together in community to worship God together can be really good for you in all sorts of ways and can have a significant positive impact upon your life. But that said, of course, it's also true that being a Christian and following Jesus can actually make our lives more difficult in this world. I mean, let's just take uh, the reality, for example, that Christianity no longer has the same place of respect in our society that it once did. And therefore, I suspect that one of the most difficult things for many Christians in the future will be to have to endure the increasing cultural marginalization that some Christians, in fact, have already begun to experience. And that it's only gonna get more difficult to be a faithful public follower of Jesus Christ. And friends, if that's true, then what that means is that all of us should expect to face the temptation to be less faithful and less public with our faith. And in fact, for some people, there will be the temptation to actually, even if just gradually, leave behind altogether their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think a very relevant and critical question for all of us who call ourselves Christians is what will we do if, when, that particular temptation comes our way? What will I do if pressure is put on me to abandon my faith in Jesus? You know, let's say you're told today that come tomorrow morning, unless you recant your faith in Jesus, you will face the severest consequences what would you do? Would you be quite sure that the promises of God really are faithful and true? Well, as we once again turn our attention uh, to the letter of uh, Hebrews here this morning, we need to remember that this was the very temptation that this early church was facing. Uh, whether this early church of Hebrew Christians was being Uh, persecuted and marginalized by the Roman authorities or uh, by the Jewish authorities, that's not clear. But what is clear is that because of their professed faith in Jesus, life was more difficult for them than it otherwise would have been. And so the tempting option that was being put before them was give up your Christianity and just rejoin the temple. Uh, Reinsert yourself to that system of sacrifices and and priests and everything else and, and leave Jesus behind. You can still be religious, just don't bring Jesus into it so much. That's the historical context of this passage. And so I think there's actually lots for us to learn here as we reflect on that particular temptation. Because what the author of Hebrews is trying to achieve, particularly with this passage here today, is to help this church to keep going and to keep trusting Jesus as the only hope they have for the forgiveness of their sins and thus not to throw in the towel of their faith in Jesus. And so in verses 26 to 39 here of chapter 10, which is sort of similar as we saw back in chapter 6 of this letter, the author employs four strategies to help them endure in their faith. He warns them, he reminds them, He exhorts them and he encourages them. And so Christian friend, whether you're here this morning as someone who's actively right now facing this temptation to stop following Jesus or not, all of us should let this passage here today prepare us to say no to that temptation if and when it comes our way. Uh, We want our resolve to keep trusting Jesus no matter what, to be strengthened here today. That's what we're after. So let's really take to heart this morning, this warning, this reminder, this exhortation, and this encouragement. So, first, let's have our resolve to keep trusting Jesus strengthened as we hear this warning. This warning is found in verses 26 to 31. Now, in your bulletin, we printed uh, two verses immediately before this passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago verses 24 and 25 in which we were instructed to help each other in this regard by uh, working to encourage and, and stir each other up all the more as we see the day of the return of Jesus drawing near. And why? Well, because when the day comes, when Jesus returns, that will be a day of judgment. Uh, we also saw this theme of coming judgment back in chapter 9, verse 27. Uh, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Because when Jesus is coming again, and on that day when he returns, he will save all of those who are eagerly waiting for him. That is, those who are actively putting their hope and their faith in him. But for those who don't, that day will be a day of judgment. And so you see the Bible here in chapter 10 is warning these Hebrew Christians what it will be like to face the judgment of God apart from the salvation of Jesus Christ. Now, as you look at verse 26, uh, it's critical you understand what sinning deliberately means. Uh, Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So again, it's critical you understand what sinning deliberately means. Uh, In the context of Hebrews, sinning deliberately involves intentionally and defiantly turning your back on the salvation that God offers you in Jesus Christ. Uh, It's saying to God, God, I reject that. Uh, I reject Jesus. I know I once said I believed it, but I don't anymore. I reject it. I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I don't believe that his cross does anything for my sins. I reject all of that. I reject Jesus and I reject the cross. That in the context of Hebrews is sinning deliberately. Okay, so for those of you who have uh, very sensitive consciences uh, about the presence of sin in your life, it's critical you understand that because this isn't a warning to you. This isn't a warning to you who, who are actively struggling against your sin while fully trusting in the blood of Jesus to make you perfect before God. Christian, if that's you, remember the promise that was made to you earlier in Hebrews that in your weakness and in your sin, you can go to the throne of God's grace and you can find mercy and help in your time of need. And so again, here in chapter 10, this isn't a warning to those of you who hate your sin and love Jesus. No, this is for those who, who for whatever reason, have decided that they're no longer going to put their faith in Jesus and in his sacrificial blood for them on the cross. And the warning that the Bible is giving here is that if we do that, then we have no hope on the day of judgment. We have no hope because there's no other sacrifice for our sin than that of Jesus' sacrifice. And so if we reject Jesus in this life, the only thing we should expect on that day of his return, this is what Hebrews 10 is telling us, is that we'll be treated like enemies of God and thus consumed by God's fiery wrath against our sin. The the writer of Hebrews says that's all that remains. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And so the point is don't give up on Jesus. Don't give up trusting Jesus' sacrifice. Because if you do, this fury of fire is what awaits you. And then to really make that point, the Bible here does two things. Uh, It makes an argument from the lesser to the greater in verses 28 and 29. And then it grounds the whole argument in the holy character of God in verses 30 and 31. This argument from the lesser to the greater in verses 28 and 29 is an argument from the old covenant to the new covenant. So if you look at verse 28... Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this is exactly what you find uh, if, for example, you read something like Deuteronomy 17. uh, Described there in Deuteronomy 17 is a a kind of high-handed, open rebellion against God that, that essentially rejects God's covenant and the law that was given from God through Moses. And for that kind of sin in which there was no repentance and there was no turning back, there was ultimately no mercy, only judgment. And so Hebrews here is saying, listen, if that was the case with the old covenant law, how much more will that be the case here in the new covenant when we're dealing with the very Son of God Himself? Verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot the Son of God? Just think of that image of trampling. And it's running over the Son of God. Stomping on him, showing complete disdain for him. That's what it's like to reject what the Bible has to say about who Jesus is as the Son of God. And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And to profane Jesus' blood is to, to treat Jesus' blood as if, it, as if it was just ordinary blood. It's to reject the Bible's claim that Jesus' blood is precious, uh, that, it, that it's efficacious, that it takes away our sin, that, that it's that which sanctifies us, that it's, it's that which makes us clean and pure so that we can go into the presence of God. It's profaned profane the blood of Jesus and has outraged the spirit of grace. I think this is the only time in the Bible where the Holy Spirit is described as the spirit of grace. And it's a beautiful description of the Holy Spirit. He's a, he's a spirit. He's the spirit of grace. Why? Because he gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives. He's generous. The, the Holy Spirit is generous in giving. But what happens when we reject Jesus is that we actually outrage the spirit. Especially if at one time we said our eyes were open, we said the Holy Spirit's at work in us, and we, and we, and we believed, and we, we testified to these things. And so it's, it's like then when we reject that, it's like we take all of the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us, and it's, it's like throwing them in the trash. And it outrages the Spirit. You know, I think this is probably that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that Jesus himself taught about. You remember that Jesus said that there's a sin that's unforgivable. I think this is it, that, that if we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, we, we never repent, we never turn back to God. Uh, ultimately, there will be no mercy, there will be only judgment. And so how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has done this? who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. And all of this is grounded in the holy character of God. Verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those two quotes in verse 30, they both come from Deuteronomy 32. And I guess, friends, what we should see is that the author doesn't quote them and then dismiss them as if they no longer have any application today under the new covenant. No, he he very much takes them and he applies them to us. And the reason, of course, is because the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And in both the Old and the New, he's both unbelievably loving and absolutely holy and therefore full of wrath against sin. And friends, you and I, we, we must not downplay that. I think sometimes Christians get nervous for God when they talk about his judgment. Uh, There's a book called something like The Skeletons in God's Closet. This would be one of God's skeletons, they would presume. Uh, Friends, God doesn't need you to protect him, He doesn't need you to protect his his, his reputation, Uh, He doesn't need you to make him more palatable to this world. This is who God is. God is holy. God is loving. And to know his love in Jesus is better than anything. But to reject his love in Jesus will lead to that which is worse than anything. And so it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Christian friends, don't try to make that more palatable to your neighbors. Just tell them the truth. Be honest with them. They need to know the truth about what's coming. Be loving. Be honest. And Christian, make sure you know this in your own heart. As you sit here today, let this strengthen your resolve to never give up your faith in Jesus. No matter how much they may persecute you or how much they may marginalize you and no matter how difficult it gets, hold on to Jesus. Because we've been warned that this is what happens to those who don't. I've been reflecting on this passage for multiple weeks now. And I think the question that I'm left with in my own heart and life is do I take this seriously enough? Do I take God seriously enough? Do I take what he's called me to in this life seriously enough? Do I take eternity seriously enough? Verses 26 to 31 are no doubt some of the most sobering verses in all the New Testament. But friends, I love God's word. I love God's word because God is gracious and he is merciful because he doesn't give us just a warning here. Now, there's an immediate shift. I love this. He, he also, through the author of this letter, he reminds these Christians of some of the really good things that have already taken place in their lives. And so in order to strengthen their resolve to keep following Jesus, he reminds them of some of the signs of grace, we might say. They're at work in them. So That's our second point this morning. It's the reminder. Look at verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Uh, The former days referred to here seem to be referring to the days when these Christians first uh, began to put their faith in Jesus. And what they did was remarkable, as it's described here. Uh, Life evidently became very difficult for them when they first became Christians, and yet they they joyfully remained faithful under pressure. Uh, They endured persecution and hardship. Uh, This word struggle in verse 32 is actually related to our our English word athletic. And so in other words, it's it's like they were engaged in a a hard-fought contest for their very lives. And it was all played out as a public spectacle. They were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. In other words, they were being mocked and abused in the public square for everyone to see and laugh at. Uh, The public spectacle of this kind of persecution reminds me of all those stories of how early Christians were martyred in the amphitheaters of Rome. You know, for example, there's the well-known story of Ignatius who lived from uh, about 67 to 110 A.D. He was ordered by the emperor to be thrown to the wild beasts as part of that public spectacle of persecution. But as he, as he faced the prospect of death for Christ, instead of backing down, he's recorded as saying, may the wild beast be eager to rush upon me. If they be unwilling, I will compel them. Come, crowds of wild beasts. Come, tearings and manglings. Racking of bones and hacking of limbs. Come, cruel tortures of the devil. Only let me attain unto Christ. And though martyrdom hadn't yet come to these Hebrew Christians, they personally experienced what it was like to be publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And yet they remained so faithful that they even partnered with, identified with others who were also undergoing persecution. And when other Christians were thrown in prison, they had compassion on them. And then not only did they have their own property plundered, but they they joyfully accepted that reality. I think in modern parlance, we would say that these these guys were on fire for the Lord. They were all in. They were fully committed. Why? Because they knew that in eternity, something far better and far more lasting awaited them. They knew that they had Jesus for eternity and that nothing in this world could compare with that. And so they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Right? You want to fire me? You want to take my possessions? You want me you, you to you throw me into prison? Go for it. I have something far better. It's going to last for eternity. That was their attitude. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't you remember that? (laughs) Don't you remember how on fire you once were? Don't you remember what you felt? Don't you remember those convictions you had about this life and eternity? And brothers and sisters, the same can be said to all of us. I remember those early days when you you were first enlightened to the truth of Jesus and his cross. Remember the joy you felt. Remember how you loved Jesus more than anything and how you would do anything for him and his people. You know, friends, as long as we're not trying to live only in the past, those memories are good. They can be motivating to us in the present. So listen, if you're ever tempted to give up your faith in Jesus, remember why you first put your faith in him. Remember the difference it made in your life and ask God to rekindle that in you so that you don't ever let go of it. Remember those former days. And so we have the warning, we have the reminder. And then out of that reminder, we have third, the exhortation. And this is really what the author has been building to here and, and what he's after. Look at verse 35. Therefore... Do not throw away your confidence, that is your confidence in Jesus, your confidence in his blood, in the the forgiveness of of sins that he's given you, the the confidence that you have to enter into the the holy places of God, into the very presence of God. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, the reward of salvation, the reward of, of eternity in the loving presence of God, the reward of heaven itself. For you have need of endurance So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and not delay. Again, the, the, the day of Jesus is drawing near. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So that's the exhortation. It's supported by a quote from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. Don't throw away your confidence, for you have need of endurance. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep trusting Jesus. Your eternal future hinges on this. And friends, it's important for us to understand the role of endurance in the Christian life. We're going to see a lot of this in the remaining chapters of this letter, particularly in chapter 12. Uh, If you have a Bible open, you want to flip over to chapter 12 real quick. Chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So endurance is absolutely critical to the Christian life, and Jesus is our model. Think about how Jesus endured something so terrible as the cross, but he did it because of the joy that awaited him. And we too need to endure for the great reward of joy that God has promised us in eternity. We need to finish the race. We can't throw in the towel. And so yes, while we do want to look back and we want to have the reminder of what it was like when we first began this race of the Christian life and we want to find motivation in that, but what ultimately matters is whether or not we finish the race. Have you ever watched a track and field event or a swimming meet, you know, sometimes you'll see those athletes who kind of sprint out really fast ahead of everyone else, and you think, wow, that's amazing. They're, they're crushing the field. But then ultimately, they, they fall off. They can't keep it up, and, and, and sometimes they don't even have the endurance to finish. Well, friends, we need to finish the race. Perseverance is a mark of our salvation. We're not saved because we persevere, but if we are saved, we will persevere, And so we should give ourselves to this, obeying the will of God, trusting Jesus, not throwing away our confidence. And the way that we'll do that, uh, the way that we'll endure to the end, is through faith. Faith is the key. Uh, That's why in chapter 10 here, the author quotes the prophet Habakkuk. Again, verse 37. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live, how? By faith. That's how he endures. And so if we're going to be counted as righteous by God, and if our life is going to be pleasing to God, what a great motivation that is. That God will look at my life and be pleased by it. Then what I need to do is I need to live by faith. Faith, and specifically faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his sacrificial death for me on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. Now, originally, God gave this exhortation to the prophet Habakkuk as, as the prophet uh, was repeatedly complaining about how much injustice there was, and specifically uh, how those who were righteous were continually being taken advantage of by the injustice of the wicked. In other words, it was a complaint about how God's people were being treated unfairly and and being persecuted. And so in response, what the Lord said to Habakkuk was that judgment would come for the wicked. Uh, Injustice would, in fact, be dealt with. And and, and, and God said, if it seems slow in coming, wait for it, he said. It will surely come. It will not delay. And therefore, what God instructed Habakkuk to do in the meantime was, was to live by faith. As Habakkuk waited for God to fulfill his promises, the righteous one shall live by faith. And in fact, in in chapter three of Habakkuk, you really see Habakkuk taking this to heart. Uh, When he famously says, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's Habakkuk learning to live by faith. Even though everything may fall apart, and life will become very difficult, and and though people may, may steal all of my things, I won't give up on God. I won't stop trusting his promises. I won't stop believing in his word. Rather, I will continue to find all of my hope and all of my joy in him. I will persevere and endure by faith. And so you see what the author of Hebrews does here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he takes that quote from Habakkuk 2 and he applies it to Jesus and he applies it to this struggling first century church. Meaning that Jesus will be the one returning soon. The coming one will come and not delay. That's Jesus. And those who will endure until that time when Jesus returns, despite whatever difficulty they encounter, are those who endure by faith. My righteous one shall live by faith and not shrink back. Now, as you may know, the Apostle Paul also uses this same quote from Habakkuk 2.4. Quite significantly, in fact, when he writes to the Romans in Romans 1.17... In order to make the case that at the heart of the gospel message is the message that we are justified before God by faith alone. And so in other words, Paul says the only reason God ever accepts us isn't because of any personal righteousness that we have, but only because of the righteousness of Jesus, which is credited to us as we put our faith in him. And so we're saved by faith alone. That's the point of Romans 1. Faith is that initial instrument by which we grab hold of Jesus and are justified. But the author of Hebrews is is using Habakkuk to make a slightly different point. It's not not a contradictory point. It's just just a different emphasis. Here in Hebrews 10, the point is that it's not just our salvation that's by faith at at the beginning of our Christian lives, but actually we're to live the whole of our lives by faith trusting God at every step along the way. And in fact, as we move into chapter 11 next week, we're gonna encounter example after example of people in the Bible who endured hard times throughout their lives, living by faith in God's promises in Jesus. And so we're being exhorted here to not throw away our confidence, for we have need of endurance, and the way that we'll endure is by faith. And so brothers and sisters, life may get difficult, Uh, It may be that you will be persecuted. It may be that you'll be marginalized. Or maybe just life in general will be just hard. And so much so that maybe, maybe you won't be able to see the promises of God being fulfilled at present in your life. And the Bible's exhorting you to have faith. Trust God. Faith is what would allow you to endure even in difficult times. And you can understand why faith then brings such pleasure to God. Because it's believing his word. It's believing his promises. It's believing him. God, you told me that this is what you have for me when Jesus returns. So I believe it. I will not let go of it. So it's the exhortation to endure by faith. And so we have the warning, we have the reminder, we have the exhortation. And then finally, in order to help strengthen our resolve to keep putting our faith in Jesus, and we have in the final verse here, the encouragement. Verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Notice there are two groups of people described there. There are those who shrink back, and because they shrink back, they're destroyed. And then there are those who have faith, and because they have faith, they preserve their souls. And the author of this letter, out of great love and concern for this church, because he so wants to see them keep going, he tries to help them do just that with a a simple word of encouragement. I, I, I know who we are. I know what we're really like. I've seen God at work in our midst. And despite the current doubts and and temptations that are surrounding us, we are not those who shrink back. We are those who have faith. That is who we are. You know, friends, we need warnings. The warnings, as painful as they can be to hear, are necessary at times. I mean, it, it, we would be unloving as a church if we saw someone wandering away from the faith, right, from the truth about Jesus, from the truth about the cross, and we didn't say anything. That, that would be an unloving thing to do. But warnings of danger are necessary at times. And so we need warnings, we, we need reminders, we need exhortations, but we also need encouragements, don't we? Uh, we need to be encouraged. Many of us are are mourning the the passing of our brother John Holbrook this past week. Always sit right there. John was one of the great encouragers in our church. Uh, You you all know that. Most of you have been encouraged by John at some point. Encouraging parents in the struggle of parenting, encouraging single people, encouraging struggling pastors. He's a great encourager. I'm going to miss John's encouragement. We need encouragers. We need encouragement. And in fact, this is what we were thinking about two weeks ago. Remember back in verses 24 and 25? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, we need each other to keep going. Uh, This encouragement business, this isn't just kind of fluff and empty flattery. This is life and death. I know who you are. I've seen God at work in your life, brother. I know you're a man of faith. Keep going. Make sure you receive that eternal reward. You know, it is true that on average, those who go to church are happier and healthier than those who don't. But as we've seen, it's also true that following Jesus can make your life very difficult. And no matter what stage of life you're in, the temptation to give up your faith in Jesus can always present itself. It can come through the peer pressure we receive in high school, or the academic belittling we encounter in college, or even just the the busyness of life as we get older and have increased responsibilities. Or or it can even come through the the trials of old age as we face the challenge of, of physical suffering. Do I really need to keep believing in Jesus? Is he really the answer? Does any of this really matter all that much? So friend, before you leave here this morning, ask God to strengthen your resolve to keep believing in Jesus no matter what. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would do that in us now. Uh, Lord, would you give us this faith? As we have heard your word here this morning, would you take this word and would you work a deep and abiding and enduring faith in every single one of us this morning? Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for all of your promises that all of your promises find their yes and amen in him and we believe that and help us to keep believing. Lord, we ask that you would do this for the the good of this church. We ask that you would do it for the good of our witness to this world. And we ask that you would do it for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.